Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Robert Weinstra, author of No Place for Glory. Robert Weinstra is the author of No Place for Glory, Major General Robert E. Rhodes and the Confederate Defeat at Gettysburg. Oh, how did you become interested in Robert Rhodes? Well, my first book was about Alfred Iverson, who was one of his brigade commanders. And I plumbed his career in depth. And as I went through, I ran across a ton of information, some of it which hasn't been used before, regarding the entire brigade or the entire division and uh, sparked my interest in bringing in all of that. And as I was looking for a new avenue for, for my third book, I thought I, I thought I could look in depth at the entire division rather than just Iverson's Brigade. Well, let's talk a little bit about Rhodes. Uh, where did he grow up? Rhodes is a native of Lynchburg, Virginia. He uh, attended Virginia Military Institute, graduated in 1848 which of course, right there in Lynchburg's area. So natural to go there. And then after that, he uh, became a civil engineer in the railroad industry. And he was in uh, Ole, Missouri, Texas, and ended up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So he was a Virginian in Alabama when the war broke out. And he had just been appointed to be a teacher at, at VMI, which he had been trying to do for several years. And uh, when the war broke out, instead of it taking that position, he formed a, a volunteer company in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. How did he get a commission? Basically, he helped form a volunteer company. And at the camp of instruction, uh, they held elections for the field officers. And he was voted to be the colonel based on his background as a VMI graduate. So well, when, as the war is beginning, uh, what kind of a combat officer was he? He was a strict disciplinarian, very strict disciplinarian, and an advocate of constant drilling. So his troops were some of the finest drilled troops in the Army. And uh, they made it to Virginia in time to briefly take part in First Manassas. And while he was at... Uh, that area, right after the battle, he, he was in a brigade commanded by Richard Ewell, who later became the corps commander, his corps commander in Lee's army. And uh, Ewell became one of his biggest advocates and helped push him along and got him appointed as a brigadier general in the fall of 1861. So uh, the period just prior to what you cover in your book uh, includes the Battle of Chancellorsville and uh, at that point, if we, if we kind of just look at him before the starting point of the Gettysburg campaign, uh, what was he doing and what kind of an officer was he? He was a highly regarded officer, but like I say, he was a, a strict disciplinarian and an advocate of constant drilling. Some of the men joked that uh, they'd rather suffer through some of the worst weather in the winter rather than have him out, 
have him make them out there marching every day for five hours. They'd rather be stuck inside in a snowstorm than, than be under his thing. But the men liked him. He was an affable guy. Um, he was generally well liked by everyone. And he was a top-notch commander. He performed well in the Seven Days Campaign at Gainesville. I mean, at Gaines's Mill. And he performed brilliantly at um, uh, Sharpsburg and South Mountain in the Maryland Campaign, Antietam, as the Northerners call it. So he was a top-notch officer. And he, when Daniel Harvey Hill transferred out of the army. He was in Daniel Harvey Hill's division. And when Daniel Harvey Hill transferred out of the army in January of 1863, um, Rose became the temporary commander. But surprisingly, Stonewall Jackson, who was his corps commander, preferred to have Edward Johnson be the new division commander. And uh, But Johnson was absent wounded and he remained a temporary commander until Chancellorsville of the division. So uh, how did he perform at Chancellorsville as an officer? He became, after Jackson, probably one, one of the biggest heroes of Chancellorsville. He was uh, at the forefront, of course, of the, of the flank attack on the 11th Corps in the woods there. And uh, as one of, one of his contemporaries wrote to a fellow officer, after Jackson, he seems to be the biggest hero of the battle. So for the Southerners, he proved to be a a real hero of that battle and basically got what amounted to a battlefield commission to be major general. So after the Battle of Chancellorsville in which the Confederate forces defeated the, the Union troops there, uh, what, why did Lee decide then to try to make a push into Pennsylvania? A lot of it had to do with the problems. Well, after Chancellorsville, they ended up in what amounted to a return to the to the previous position, which is a stalemate along the Rappahannock River, which many of the men reacted to their victory at, at Chancellorsville with actually more with despair than joy. I mean, this is viewed as by, by many people as Lee's greatest victory. Many of them viewed with the, the, the victory with despair because they were too weak to follow up and really decisively destroy Hooker's army. And Lee did not want to be stuck with a, with a stalemate. He wanted to take the initiative. And also there began to suffer severely from shortages of supplies because of the problems in gaining. The, the Shenandoah Valley had virtually been decimated of crops and uh, they were having a lot of supply problems. So there were several issues. One was to be able to push north, gather supplies, and also to put political pressure on the North. He hoped that a victory in the North would cause the Northern populace to realize that the war was unwinnable and be so worn out that they'd finally sue for peace. Now you mentioned in the book that uh, Robert Rhodes had a penchant for having every detail in place before aggressively moving forward with an attack. Uh, are these personality characteristics uh, uh, play a role in, in his performance? They certainly do. They certainly seem to it, uh, it on the second day, particularly on the second day at Gettysburg when um, he was assigned to, to assist 
Jubal Early's night attack on Cemetery Hill, which surprisingly resulted in the capture of a number of batteries at the top of Cemetery Hill and seemed on the verge of actually turning the Union Army's flank. But Rhodes was so careful in his preparations and his, and his uh, operation ran so late that by the time Early's troops penetrated the top of Cemetery Hill, um, his men were not in position and it ended up being a night attack that he actually had to cancel before it actually moved forward. And he received a lot of blame for that amongst the other commanders in the, in the Confederate Army. Well, let's go back and uh, just kind of look at the people who were involved in, in uh, Rhodes' division and corps. Uh, yes. So uh, his corps commander would be Lieutenant General Richard Ewell. Who was he? Richard Ewell was a um, U.S. Army veteran. He had been a captain, fought in the Mexican War, was a captain in the pre-war Army. And uh, he was a Virginian and had uh, been one of uh, Jackson's most trusted subordinates. He suffered a major wound in the uh, second Manassas campaign, resulted in the amputation of his leg. Uh, he was out of action until just before um, the Gettysburg campaign got underway when he was appointed to be Stonewall Jackson's successor as the second corps commander. Now, uh, there are two figures who play a role in, uh, in the Gettysburg campaign uh, that we'll probably be talking about. Uh, one is Alfred Holt Iverson. Who was he? Alfred Holt Iverson. He was the son of a, of a Georgia senator, U.S. senator. Uh, he was a, served as an as a officer at a very young age in the Mexican War in a Georgia volunteer battalion. Um, through his father's influence, he was appointed at, from the civilian ranks as a officer in the second US Cavalry prior to the war in the 18, middle 1850s. And it was posted at Carlisle Barracks and some other major posts, fought, fought uh, against some Comanche Indians in the, in, the, in the period just prior to the war. And of course, his father was a strong secessionist and was uh, uh, one of the real firebrands in the South. And he, of course, then left the US Army and joined the Confederate cause. Now, another figure that we'll talk about is Edward O'Neill. Edward O'Neill was a lawyer in Alabama. He, he commanded an Alabama brigade at Gettysburg. Um, he was a lawyer and an ardent secessionist. And he got a lot of influence as a secessionist leader in Alabama. He commanded the 26th Alabama, which was part of the uh, what had been Robert Rhodes' brigade. So he was one of the commanders of one of the regiments in, in Robert Rhodes' brigade, which also included Rhodes' 5th Alabama Regiment. Um, he had mixed success and was really regarded by many as, as merely a political general with 
with no real military experience. And a lot of people were skeptical about his abilities, including Rhodes. As uh, the campaign got underway, um, they were trying to find a replacement for Rhodes. Lee unexpectedly picked him to be Rhodes' replacement and put forth his nomination to be a brigadier general. Rhodes protested so vigorously against this that Lee withdrew the nomination right before the campaign got underway. And so everyone could see how well he performed in the, in the Gettysburg campaign. So his, his future was pending as the, as the battle got underway and he was, and he regarded Rhodes as one of his bitter enemies because Rhodes had been the one who had prompted Lee to withdraw his nomination as as the new brigade commander and promotion to brigadier general. So as uh, as the Confederate troops are moving forward, uh, at what point do they cross over the Pennsylvania border? June 22nd, they crossed over the Pennsylvania border and moved briefly onto Greencastle and then north through the Cumberland Valley, through Chambersburg, Shippensburg, and Carlisle, up toward Harrisburg. Now, in the book, you talk, as they move into Maryland and into Pennsylvania, you talk about how the Confederate troops are seizing African-Americans, those who are enslaved in Maryland, as well as free African-Americans in both states. Um, yes. How, how extensive was this, and what, what, were they, what were they doing with these people once they were uh, seizing them? It's very extensive, really. It was much more expensive than people realize. Now, what, particularly in Chambersburg, on June 15th, um, Alfred... Albert Jenkins, who was a brigade uh, cavalry commander assigned to Rose Division, carried out a raid on Chambersburg on June 15th. He caught everybody pretty much off guard and his men hauled off about 60 um, African-Americans from Chambersburg and took them south. They were then taken back. Supposedly they would be returned to their former owners if they were runaway slaves or if, if, if they couldn't find their owners, and we'll tell them we're free blacks, so obviously they didn't find their owners, they would actually be sold back into slavery. Now, the, the route that, that they were taking into Pennsylvania uh, kind of follows the route of today's Interstate 81, Greencastle to Chambersburg, Shippensburg, to eventually to Carlisle. And right. uh, how, how were they greeted by the people who lived in these communities? They were greeted with a certain amount of fear and dread. Um, but Lee had put through this general orders number 72 in which he governed how they would be treated by his men. And he put in strict rules that were generally followed, but particularly Albert Jenkins men were not beyond violating those rules. But really there were no there were very, very few examples of outright violence, but they gathered up huge amounts of supplies. And worst of all, they paid the money, the, the, the owners of the property with, with Confederate money or Confederate script, basically IOUs, which were worth, basically worthless. So although it was done officially and Officially, they got compensation. The reality was that the farmers were wiped out by this, and they hit every farm they could they could go to. And they hauled away tons of horses, cattle, sheep, uh, farm equipment—you name it—they took it. 
Now, were they planning to go to Harrisburg? The big objective was to go to Harrisburg because Lee and, and the other commanders felt that that would be a carry huge symbolic value. It would be the first major capital in a northern state to be taken in the, in the war. And they felt that that would be a huge, a huge uh, psychological blow to the north. So yes, the, the, the main aim was to go to, go to Harrisburg and, and, seize the, and seize the state capital there. Now, you, t you talk about how when, when the troops were at Carlisle, that there was a bout of extensive drinking. Uh, what was going on? Well, they were, they were enjoying themselves. I mean, some of them were sleeping indoors at Carlisle Barracks. There was a big army base there, Carlisle Barracks. Some of the men were sleeping indoors for the first time. They were getting all the food they wanted. They were eating turkeys and hams and, and uh, beef cattle. And uh, uh, they enjoyed themselves. And drinking was just part of the lifestyle at that time. And, and they enjoyed themselves. They got drunk. The, one of the biggest issues was that some of the top officers also participated in drinking, including Rhodes, who got notoriously drunk during a flag raising ceremony at uh, at the barracks in front of the commandant's quarters. And uh, many of his staff officers were so drunk that they were actually falling down and people had to grab their coattails to keep them from toppling over during the, during the ceremony. Now, we, we talked about them wanting to go to Harrisburg, but they, they, didn't, they didn't make that trip. Uh, when did they get orders to head down towards the Gettysburg area? Let me see. Um, Albert Jenkins probed the area around Harrisburg and um, as they were probing that area, Lee received news from a scout through Longstreet, came through Longstreet from a scout that, that, that the Union Army was, was moving north much quicker than they expected. And he decided he had to concentrate his forces around Chambersburg. Initially, it was going to be around Chambersburg to, uh, to counter that move by Hooker. So on June 29th, um, two, of, two of Ewell's divisions were up at up around Carlisle and heading toward Harrisburg. Those Edward Johnson's division headed south on June 29th back to toward Chambersburg. Rhodes' division was held until a second day when a, until the following day when new orders came in ordering them to to concentrate around either Gettysburg or Cashtown. And so they took a different route and headed south and ended up a few miles outside of Gettysburg on the night of June 30th, but at the town of Heidlersburg, just outside of Gettysburg on the night of June 30th, Rhodes Division. Now you mentioned that, that uh, the Union troops were moving up faster than they expected. As, as these Confederate troops were moving into Pennsylvania, where, where was the Union Army at that point? It was in it was in the southern part of Pennsylvania by that point, moving you know more, but they were very spread out. So only certain parts of the of the Union Army were moving up close to Gettysburg, and so on the first day, of course, on both sides, you only have parts of each army uh, engaged in the battle there. So when uh, on the day that they arrived in the Gettysburg area, what, what were their orders? Well, they were supposed to be heading to Cashtown. When they got north about at the, at the town of Middletown, which was known as Middletown at the time, uh, Biglerville, 
area, seven miles north of Gettysburg, Rhodes Division in particular heard gunfire, cannon fire coming from, from, from the south. So they were headed to Cashtown because uh, Ewell, who was traveling with the Rhodes Division, decided to go to Cashtown. As they, as they got to that area, they heard the cannon fire and they turned south on the road leading to Gettysburg. They made a change in plans. Johnson's division, meanwhile, was trekking on the other side of South Mountain, south toward Chambersburg and then, and then uh, east toward Cashtown. Now you mentioned that uh, after arriving north of Gettysburg, Ewell held a strategy session with Rhodes and Early. What did they talk about? Basically, where they were going to head the next day and uh, what what their orders would be. Um, Ewell, in particular, was frustrated by the lack of clarity in the orders that he got because he Lee, Lee sent him an order that basically amounted to, well, you know, if practical or if 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 possible, you can go to either either Cashtown or Gettysburg and and. Isaac Trimble, who, was, who had been a major general, who was kind of unassigned, but attached himself to Ewell's Corps, was there in the argument he claimed later on, although you know some people are skeptical about some of his stories, that he argued vehemently that they should head to Gettysburg rather than Cashtown. And but but Ewell was frustrated with him and decided he was going to Cashtown until they the next morning, then they arrived north of Gettysburg and heard the, heard the cannon fire. Now, to, during the battle, you often hear a lot of stories of uh, skirmishers, and, and you say in the book that uh, Rhodes established formal skirmish detachments in his division at the beginning of 1863. Uh, what were skirmishers? What was their role in, in the unit? Yeah, he was a real innovator. Be, before, before his move to, to form those units, Everything had been done kind of on an ad hoc basis. They would gather up men on the front lines, send them forward. They would basically go forward to make sure that no one was uh, gonna trap them, uh, go forward and a thin line to kind of clear the area in front, of, in front of the advancing troops and make sure that they wouldn't be caught by surprise. Um, he formed formal units that actually trained for that duty and uh, did it throughout the whole division. Basically, by the time of Gettysburg, he had formed units that consisted of one sixth of, of the men in each in each brigade, formed into these uh, skirmisher units. Um, sometimes they're called sharpshooters, which is a little bit of a misnomer because basically they operated mostly as skirmishers. They did have long range rifles and had some training as sharpshooters but they mostly served as uh, skirmishers. Now, the Battle of Gettysburg would begin on, on July 1st, and Rhodes' unit would be heavily involved in some of that fighting. Uh, were, were they expected to get involved in a major battle there? They had, I mean, when they arrived there, they had no idea. They thought the Union Army it was not that close, and they did not expect to be pulled into a battle right away. It was, came, came as somewhat of a surprise to them. Can you describe that as, uh, as Rhodes' division was moving uh, down into the northern part of, of the town, just outside of the town, can you kind of describe where the, his division was in relationship to the Union troops? 
as they pulled into town, the fighting had already begun on, on the other side of town around the Chambersburg Turnpike coming in from Cashtown between um, the Federal First Corps and you have the famous, you know, wounding of Reynolds with, with elements of AP Hill's Third Corps, which had been camped at Cashtown. So the fighting was going on sort of northwest of town along Chambersburg Turnpike. And uh, Buford had put forward, General Buford, who was famous for, for his encounter with, uh, with Hill's troops uh, along Chambersburg Turnpike, um, had put, put what they called vedettes, cavalry skirmishers along the road um, that Rhodes troops took into Gettysburg from the north. And he encountered these uh, skirmishers there and he threw out his own skirmishers and soon they became in a, involved in a, in a several hour struggle to clear the roadway into the north of Gettysburg. As they moved, moved in, he spotted the Ewell spotted a hill nearby, Oak Hill, which is known as Oak Hill, which is where the famous Peace Light Memorial is today, if you go there on the battlefield. And uh, he moved the bulk of his troops onto Oak Hill while they skirmished with the with the with uh, some of Buford's cavalrymen. The bulk of the troops moved into place on Oak Hill overlooking the Forney farm field. Uh, McLean Bar, and these are some of the famous spots on the first day of the battlefield in that part of the town. So as Rhodes' division is coming down in, into that area, what was his plan for, for his, uh, his brigade commanders? When they got there, he decided, he and Ewell worked out a plan. They decided they would send um, Iverson's brigade and O'Neill's brigade would, would, would launch an attack against a, a group of federal troops from the First Corps, Federal First Corps, and part of the Eleventh Corps, which had just moved into the area, along with what became known as Oak Ridge, which is just a, basically the northern extension of Seminary Ridge, along the area around Oak Hill. So they moved it into place and. Uh, they would that would be followed up by an attack by Junius Daniels uh, brigade in the area of what became known as the railroad cut, famous railroad cut. And those troops would stay on the north to watch for any late arriving troops from the Federal 11th Corps and uh, kind of watch over the situation. So you had uh, you had Rhodes two worst commanders. Iverson and O'Neill um, leading the way in the, in the attack, which is many people found to be something they could hardly believe that he did, but, but, but that's what he did. And you mentioned in the book that uh, even historians have, have looked back on this and wondered why, why he chose his weakest commanders to, to uh, lead, lead the way. Uh, any insight into that? I think, and it seems to be, it was pure chance. What happened is, is that uh, they had this kind of rule that as they were marching, as they were marching north, the brigades would rotate who was at the head of the column each day. So just by chance, Iverson's and O'Neill's brigades were at the head of the column as they were heading toward Gettysburg. 
the best the best division or brigade commander, Dotson Ramser's men were actually in the rear, which is something they never almost never were. And so they ended up being in reserve on Oak Hill and didn't become engaged while two of his worst commanders led the way. It's kind of, but really it, it, it seems to be that it came about by pure chance. Well, let's talk about how his worst commanders did on that day. Uh, O'Neill's forces would be the first to move down and, and make contact with the federal troops. What happened? Uh, they barely, barely made a dent. They came down. Um, they were pushed back almost immediately in their first attempt. Um, Rhodes didn't trust O'Neill that well. He personally tried to uh, uh, interfere, I guess, with, with the deployment of the men. He, he, he was there, but tried to firsthand tell him exactly where to go. Instead, they didn't follow his directions and they kind of stumbled forward and O'Neill was pushed back almost immediately. Now he would return later on, but his initial attack was pushed back almost immediately. Now Iverson's forces would end up crossing over a, a field on their way towards the, the Union lines. Uh, what was their experience like as they were crossing this field? They went forward like, um, uh, like a dress, they, they, they talk about them moving forward as if they were on dress parade. They marched forward without any skirmishers at all along their front lines. Um, the way the situation worked out, the skirmishers did not move into place. Now that was partly, um, Rhodes didn't order them forward and Iverson uh, said he didn't have time to push them forward. So they moved forward across the, this open field toward a, a, some skirmishers that they saw in, in, in the field that they, they thought were threatening to attack some of the Confederate batteries on Oak Hill. And they moved forward and but behind the stone wall was hidden six Union regiments primed and ready and waiting for them to come. And as they moved within about 80 yards of the wall, they sprang up at once and fired off a tremendous volley that tore, that just tore Iverson's brigade to shreds. What, what did his men do when they were hit, hit that hard? Basically, they, they ducked for cover into a slight gully that went across the, the field there. You can go there today and see the actual field. That part of the battlefield is really well preserved. You can see it, it's, 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 it's incredible to see. And they fell by the hundreds. I mean, literally by the hundreds in heaps right there. And they, they couldn't retreat. They couldn't go forward. They'd get slaughtered. They couldn't retreat. They'd get slaughtered. They just sat there and took enemy fire. And by then they were getting crossfire from, from an area of woods on their left from Cutler's brigade that had moved into place there. And part of uh, Baxter's brigade, which, which, kind of flexed forward on their right and they were getting cross-fired, stuck in a hollow and slaughtered almost to a man. So where was Iverson while this was all going on? Was he leading his troops from the front? He was uh, not leading them from the front. He stayed behind. Um, a lot of people said he was hiding behind a log <laughs> as his men moved forward to get slaughtered. Um, 
he his by then his brigade had become almost dysfunctional because of all the disputes that he was having with his men over his his uh, favoritism for promotion for some of his friends for his uh, kind of incompetence. Um, he was hated in the in the brigade, and so it was just a totally dysfunctional affair that was going on as they moved forward that day across the field. So how did Rhodes respond to O'Neill and Iverson's troubles at this point? Well, he he attempted to uh, to send, first of all, he, he, he got O'Neill to try to come to their aid. Um, by then, the Confederates were trapped in the hollow and some of the Union troops were, were coming out of the field to take them as prisoners. And they gathered up right there on the spot, nearly 350 men from Iverson's brigade who were, who were slightly wounded. And then there were hundreds of other men that were either badly wounded or dying. But he sent O'Neill forward again to try and rescue them from the, and that failed again. And so you had, uh, he tried to throw in a couple more of, uh, of uh, O'Neill's regiments into the battle. They got pushed back, so so O'Neill failed again. So again, his two worst his two worst commanders um, fell apart on the spot. Now you talk in the book about how the Union troops were capturing battle flags from these units. Uh, how important are battle flags to to soldiers at this time? Very important. It was a, it was a sign of their honor, and they they do anything possible not to lose the flags, and they. They actually captured two of two of Iverson's battle flags and one of O'Neill's there on the spot, which is uh, which is uh, for the Confederates. It was very very uncommon to lose battle flags in, that, in any of their major battles, which most of which, of course, or Lee's army were were victories, and uh, they felt it was a sign of dishonor and shame to lose the flags. How was Rhodes communicating with his subordinate officers during the battle? He was um, on on Oak Hill, looking down over the over the battlefield, and um, was 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 trying to communicate through his staff officers, of course. And uh, he was having a mixed mixed luck. Um, no matter what he did, Iverson and and Neil seemed to. Um, not do so well. At the same time, Junius Daniels was going down toward the railroad cut, which is another famous area there, and was having a lot more success in, in pushing back the, the Union troops that are around the McPherson the railroad cut and around the McPherson farm um, just south of Oak, Oak Hill. And, uh, and Dole's troops were, were holding out in the north and waiting for any signs that, that any more of the Federal 11th Corps was coming into position. So it was a mess. And one of the officers you talk about is Captain Don Peters Halsey. Who is he? Don Peters Halsey is a Lynchburg native. Um, he was a, uh, one of the most brilliant men in, in Lee's army. He had been a, he had graduated at the age of like 18 from the University of Virginia. Uh, he then studied in uh, in Europe at, at major universities all over uh, Germany. Um, he spoke like 
you know, five or six different languages fluently. Um, he came back, although he was a union supporter, he came back he, as a union supporter, he came back to try and uh, keep the state from, from leaving the union. But when the war broke out, just like Lee and some other, other and other sort of pro-union uh, Virginians, decided to go with the Confederate cause, basically to go with their native state of Virginia. He also was like a, a incredibly brave officer. He became a staff officer under, under Iverson's predecessor, Samuel Garland. And when uh, Iverson took over the brigade from Garland, he kept Halsey on as, uh, as, as his uh, assistant adjutant general. And so Halsey was kind of, unlike Iverson, Halsey was well-liked in the brigade and seemed to be an incredibly competent uh, officer. What was his role during the battle? He basically went out, when, it's, when the men were stuck in the, out on the, on the Forney field and getting slaughtered, there was one group from the 12th North Carolina under uh, Lieutenant Colonel Davis who kind of escaped from the worst of the slaughter. He went out to try and, and help them out. And uh, although he had no orders from Iverson, he decided he, could, he, did, he wouldn't stay behind the lines. He went out there and tried to uh, rally the troops who were stuck on the field and the men that were getting, trying to organize them in some shape to eventually move forward and try and renew the attack. Now, after these initial setbacks, uh, the Confederates would uh, eventually push the Union troops back. And how were the tables turned? Well, a lot of it had to do with Dotson Ramser. Even Dotson Ramser, everybody called him Dotson or Dodd, um, was probably the best brigade commander in Lee's entire army. Uh, he was a incredibly brilliant and uh, gallant commander, but he had been held in reserve throughout most of the fighting. So just as things looked like they were really totally falling apart for Rhodes Division, I mean, looked like it was just a day of disaster, Ramser came in and personally led his troops, unlike Iverson, he personally led at the very forefront his troops in a brilliant attack across the Forney Field and drove the drove the Union forces off of Oak Ridge in a, in, a, in, a, in, a brilliant, in a brilliant way and suffered only minor casualties while capturing um, several hundred Union prisoners. Now, at, at, towards the end of July 1st, that first day of the battle, Rhodes' division would end up in Gettysburg. And uh, at that point, where, how did he assess the, the day's events? He initially wanted, he wanted Ewell to move forward. He initially, initially halted his brigade or his division in Gettysburg because they were tired and because Lee had, Lee had sent out orders earlier that uh, he did not want a general battle brought on until all his other troops were in place. As, as Ewell struggled with, with whether or not to resume the attack and take and take Cemetery Hill, where where many of the Union troops were retreating, uh, Rhodes initially 
favored moving forward, but only if they got reinforcements on their on their right flank. And um, when that fell through, he ended up kind of changing his mind and uh, ended up not supporting an attack on 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 Cemetery Hill, which which later on became what you know what nearly everybody criticized Yule for doing. Now, this decision by Yule not not to proceed uh, and and attack the Union troops on Cemetery Hill that would become you mentioned how it would become later part of the Lost Cause uh, movement. Uh, what was the Lost Cause, and and how was this particular part of the battle used by them? Well, the Lost Cause it, it, it had a lot of aspects to it that basically that. Um, the Confederates did not lose because of their lack of lack of uh, fighting spirit, skill, bravery, but were overwhelmed by the uh, the wealth and size of the of the North. Um, that uh, one aspect of it that became emphasized by many people was kind of the invincibility of Lee, uh, his untarnished reputation as a, as, a, as a commander. And to do that, you had to find out some way to explain what happened at, at Gettysburg, which is the defeat. And so they often pointed to other people and you became one target for the, for the criticism as to why, why events that day fell apart or those three days fell apart. So after, after the first day of the battle, um and the strategic situation was different than it had been previously. What were Lee's orders to his troops on the next day? Well, he had to decide whether, whether to actually to, uh, they, they got a victory, but it was an incomplete victory. They didn't take Cemetery Hill. The Union troops were on the high ground on Cemetery Hill and, and Culp's Hill, which is nearby. And he had to uh, um, decide what to do next in terms of, of how to move forward on the next day. And eventually, rather than moving, moving his troops to another location to get more favorable ground, he felt like maybe all of the Union troops weren't in the place yet and that he could, he could maybe turn their vulnerable, um, the Union's vulnerable left flank and carry out an un an echelon attack along the along Cemetery Ridge and uh, turn their flank. So as the as July second begins, what is Rhodes Division assigned to do? Rhodes Division uh, receives orders that they're not part of the main attack that's taking place with Longstreet's two new new divisions. And part of AP Hill's Corps on, on the on the flank of uh, of the Union Army on the left flank of the Union Army. Ewell's Corps was ordered to carry out some operations around Cemetery Hill. Jubal Early, who was one of the other of uh, Ewell's division commanders, launched an attack on the eastern side of. Cemetery Hill, which surprisingly uh, was su very successful in carrying the heights. And uh, Rhodes was supposed to join in the attack if, if there was any sort of a breakthrough. And he had actually worked out a plan 
with Ewell to support him in the attack that day and uh, moved his troops into place on the western flank of, of Cemetery Hill along an area called Long Lane and uh, was going to move forward onto the flank of the, the western flank of Cemetery Hill and, and, and it would turn out to be a night attack. And what happened? As he moved forward, um, it got later and later and later. He, his penchant for uh, having everything in place caused numerous delays. His troops were delayed getting into place. Uh, the advance was delayed getting underway. It was night. The men didn't like being uh, put into position for a night attack in the darkness. They were all Many of them were very upset about it. Um, as they moved forward, it was got later and later. Um, they started to draw fire from the, from Cemetery Hill, and, and they stopped after a short advance. And Dotson Ramser, who sent out some uh, scouts, and they did a reconnaissance of the hill and decided that the position was so impregnable that they couldn't move forward. And Rhodes actually canceled the night attack, which, which, which sent Jubal Early and some of the other commanders into a total uproar for uh, failing, to, failing to follow through on their promise to support them in the, in the night attack, which, which by then had failed completely. Now there was uh, on the third day of the battle. What what was Rhodes' division assigned to do? Basically, two brigades from his division were detached and sent off to O'Neill's and Junius Daniels' brigades were sent off to uh, um, assist Edward Johnson in a renewed attack on Culp's Hill, which was supposed to coordinate with uh, Lee's attack that became known as, basically became known as Pickett's Charge um, on, on the northern end of the line at Culp's Hill. Um, the Union launched a spoiling attack early in the morning on July 3rd, which uh, kind of destroyed those plans completely. These other three brigades remained along, along Long Lane, Long Lane and um, were supposed to follow up if Pickett's troops made any breakthroughs in the Union lines. And uh, they were waiting there all day to see if they would, would move forward, of course, which they did not in the end. Now, given Rhodes' performance during this battle, as well as the performance of Iverson and O'Neill, uh, once the battle was over, what, what was the fallout? Um, Rhodes got a lot of criticism from Jubal Early and some other people, but but he he did not um, he was in no danger of losing his position by any means. He he had his problems, of course, that day, and 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 received, like I say, a certain amount of criticism. Uh, Jubal Early reportedly uh, said that. Ewell's, or that uh, Rhodes was fairly censorable for his, for his misconduct in carrying out the attack on, on Cemetery Hill. Iverson, of course, 
was stripped of his command. And uh, basically after a, a brief tenure as a temporary brigade commander in another one of Lee's uh, divisions, he was shipped off to Georgia. O'Neill was uh, also passed over to be Brigadier General and a new, and a new uh, brigade commander was appointed and he eventually left Lee's army in uh, January of 1864. How did Rhodes uh, perform in other battles after this one? Was, was the Gettysburg situation an anomaly for him? Absolutely. He, he performed brilliantly in the Overland campaign. I mean, absolutely brilliantly. And, and, and he repeatedly, he repeatedly, everything he did basically um, in that operation confirmed that, that for whatever reason, Gettysburg had been a total aberration. Um, he performed so well that that the army was in real shock when he was killed at the Battle of Third Winchester in, in, in early uh, Shenandoah operations in the, in the fall of 64. Now, you, you talk extensively in the book about uh, how the wounded were treated. Uh, what was it like to be a wounded soldier, a wounded Confederate soldier at this battle? Well, it, the conditions uh, were horrendous. At the, they, they set up two, two locations for Rhodes Field Hospital about a mile and a half west of a, a mile and a half from the uh, uh, field where Iverson's troops were slaughtered. There were just literally hundreds of wounded soldiers there. I mean, Iverson's brigade ended up having like 800 casualties. Uh, Daniel's brigade in sheer numbers, because it was so huge, it wasn't the worst in, in, in percentage terms, but because it was so huge, they had more than 900 casualties. O'Neill's brigade had seven or 800 casualties. So you literally had hundreds of wounded, mangled, soldiers on these two um, field hospitals, on these two farms. And the horror stories is just, is just one after another, and, and they were short on, on medical supplies, on, on uh, amputation equipment, they, taking down barn doors to use for carrying out amputation operations on, on many of the men, piles of, you know, piles of amputated legs and arms lying around guys would be pulled in and they'd see these piles of, of amputated limbs. Uh, it's just horrendous. They mentioned in the book that uh, troops were forbidden from helping wounded comrades uh, during a fight. Why? why? To, to maintain unit cohesion and to keep the troops moving forward on the battlefield. But, but it wasn't that they were, no one was, was assisting the men. They had what's called an ambulance corps in each in each regiment. Two men from each company were were assigned as uh, uh, litter bearers, and they operated with a with along with the assistant surgeon with each unit moving forward in the attack. So it was forbidden for individual soldiers to help their friends. You couldn't go forward and keep the battle moving forward and keep the troops moving forward if men were dropping out every few feet to help their friends. Um, but they were getting treated and taken, taken 
back to aid stations behind the lines and then on to the field hospitals. After the battle was over, uh, Lee's army had to make its way back to Virginia. What was it like for wounded soldiers to be riding in wagons on their way down to Maryland and uh, into the Potomac River? Well, the one I'm most familiar with, and, and there, the same things happened in other units, but I'm most familiar with what happened with Ewell's men, and they went through an area called Monterey Pass, and um, the wagons were loaded with, with soldiers who were screaming in agony, um, bumpy roads, um, it was raining like crazy, thunder and lightning, they had herds of cattle who were being herded along the roadway, they got loose in the mountains, the thunder scared the animals, they were making all these noise, bellowing sounds, lightning, and they were getting attacked by Union cavalry. I mean, it was a horrendous situation. So you had this entire midnight battle at Monterey Pass that, uh, you know, basically was, was horrendous for anyone in, in, in that long column of wounded soldiers. Now, there also ended up being uh, a fight in Hagerstown, Maryland. Uh, who was involved yes. in that fight? Well, basically, uh, there were some Confederate cavalry units in Hagerstown. Um, they were attacked by some Union cavalry who came in from the south and uh, were driven back. And uh, by then, Iverson's brigade had been assigned to escort the uh, wagon train of wounded, was beginning to approach that area. And so Iverson's troop became kind of the centerpiece, along with some of Albert Jenkins' um, cavalrymen in, 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 in routing the the uh, Union forces out of Hagerstown and preventing them from uh, from really from stopping uh, Lee's retreat and overwhelming the, the survivors. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, but I just wanted to ask you about uh, one of the things you say. You say that the Confederates stole several million dollars worth of loot from the terrified merchants and farmers in central Pennsylvania's lush Cumberland Valley. Uh, how were how they transporting this vast amount of loot that, that they had stolen from Pennsylvanians? Well, a lot of it was in the wagon trains, uh, along with the wounded soldiers in Ewell's division, there was a, the wagon train that, that Ewell had heading south was, can you believe this, 40 miles long when stretched out along the roadway, 40 miles long. It was filled with hundreds of wounded men, but it was also filled with all of this loot, plunder, uh, it's the best way to describe it, uh, that they were sending south. In addition, herds of sheep, cattle, horses, um, a lot of it had been sent back earlier than that, but a large amount of it was, was, was being uh, transported south in, the, in that long wagon train. We've been speaking with Robert Weinstra. He is the author of No Place for Glory, Major General Robert E. Rhodes and the Confederate Defeat at Gettysburg. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. 
Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.